I guess it's a good time to celebrate. They put these balloons up here. Yesterday, if you were here, we had the serve team party, and we had this, uh, we had a, it was like a sports theme. And so when you walked into the gym, you like walked under the balloons like you would like for a big game or something, I guess. And so they put those in here. That's why it's a good time, and we had some training going on, and I think it was a really good time for our church. Um, and so, yeah, that's why all of these, I, I want to like have something to, very tempting. That's what we do at our house, too, after our kids start fighting over the balloons. I'm just going to pop them all, right? You've all been there. If you've had kids, you've done it. Don't lie, right? You've done it. I know, I know you have. So um, just you have. So um, and if you have kids someday, you will, all right? We are starting a new service this morning, if you are with us. Uh, it's called the Marriage Commandments. And so we're in February. We're going to do a relationship series uh, over the next couple of weeks. Um, I, I, I'll just be honest with you, right? I, I, I want to be careful not to plagiarize, but I, I got this book, um, or I got this idea out of this book, and it's a book that I'd never actually heard of before. Um, and it's, a lot, it's, it's not like a lot of marriage books that I've actually read. Um, it's called The Marriage Commandments by John Diffender. Um, and uh, I just found it really interesting. I was like, you know what? This is something that our church needs to hear. They haven't probably heard a, a lot of this before, but it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of lay the groundwork um, that he lays even in the book a little bit. I, I changed some of it slightly because I think it's a really good book for a number of reasons. Um, one is because I learned something new. Two is I agree with most of it. Um, and so, but there are some things like, hey, I want to tweak this a little bit. And if you read the book, maybe you'll figure out what I, what I tweak. Um, but the book is once our marriage. And so kind of to begin, I want you to imagine if you've been married uh, the, the time you're standing at the altar, and men, you're at the altar, women, you're walking d- down the aisle, and um, maybe mo- for some of you, right, this has kind of happened before that time, but uh, a lot of us at that time, or just before you realize all of this is going to take place, what you, what you discover is that you're standing there thinking about how your life is going to change, or right? how it's going to kind of be transformed. Uh, before I, I got married, I was living alone. Well, I had a roommate um, uh, and had been single for, for years and never really had to take care of anybody besides my dog. And so you, you think about this. Uh, I'm getting married to a young girl right out of college. And so um, she had just graduated. You all know Emily. And, and I remember thinking like, okay, I know she's a very capable person, but I am still going to be responsible for take for somebody else's emotional needs, spiritual needs, um, even physical needs, all of those sorts of things. And so you think about the, that, and it kind of makes you nervous. And then the, the marriage ceremony itself is supposed to be this covenant. When you commit to each other, right, till death do us part, for better or for worse, right, for richer or for poorer. And you go through all of that, and it... it it's great, but also it can make you kind of nervous as you're thinking about that and preparing for that. The Israelites being at Mount Sinai before they received the Ten Commandments and kind of while they're waiting for the Ten Commandments. You see, they've gone to Mount Sinai, and as they get there and they're waiting on the mount, and Moses is going up and they're kind of waiting for them to come down, they are at the mountain because God is leading them to a new life. God has led them out as slaves from Egypt, and he leads them to this mountain. And when you get to the people that 
they are then going to receive because they are going to be married to God. They're going to be united to God. And they are waiting on this. And whether they realize it or not, um, their entire life is going to be changed by this covenant. And so this is one of the very first covenants we see in the Bible. When you think about the Ten Commandments, it's God basically telling them that if you follow me, right, and if, if you keep these commandments, if you keep this covenant, if you keep this promise here to, to follow these sorts of things, you'll be blessed. Like, it'll go well with you in the land and the place that I'm leading you to. On the other hand, right, if you don't, you're really going to struggle. Our, our relationship, it's not as going to be as good as it could be. Um, in fact, right, you, if you like break these and continue to break these and have the heart that desires to break these, you will actually walk away from me. What's interesting, too, kind of doing a little bit of research as far as like Jewish marriage is concerned, um, is the Jewish people, they have something called uh, kubots. And what kubots are, as you get married, they're basically like simple contracts. They're almost like nuptials or prenuptials that married people would maybe do today and for the Jewish people is is just really simple right there's nothing like sexy about it there's nothing romantic about it it was just both kind of sides saying okay I'm going to bring these things to the marriage you're going to bring this to the marriage and we're going to do our best to live up to this agreement that will one side is responsible for a few things the other side's responsible for a few things and they bring it together well the Ten Commandments in some ways is what John says here and I, I think um, others would agree is it's kind of one of the first kibbats where God is coming and he's saying, hey, here's your end of the bargain, right? Here's what I'm going to ask you to live up to. You, you, you are going to live up to this and you're going to keep these things. And if it does, like our, our marriage will go well and it will be good. But more than that, when you bring these things together, when God is coming together and his people are coming together, what he's trying to do is he's trying to unite himself with the people. They are, are supposed to be um, together and linked together forever in this. And so here's kind of a question for you. When you think about the Ten Commandments, when you think about this covenant, God saying, I want to be your God and here are the commandments that you are also gonna, I'm going to give you, but you're going to bring to the table basically. How do the commandments begin? That's kind of a trick question. Most of you, I'm guessing, are thinking, you're trying to think of the first commandment, right? You're like, well, what was the first one? Uh, I get it, right? You are. Um, but the truth is, is the Ten Commandments do not begin with a commandment. Do you realize that? And so today, we're not going to talk about a commandment that God gives us. We're actually going to look at the foundation of the Ten Commandments. And I believe that we can learn a lot from this foundation. We find the Ten Commandments given for the first time. It's in Exodus 20, and it's verse 1 and 2 here. And it says this. It said, God spoke all these words saying, and this is the verse before he starts giving the commandments in verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I want you to see two things right here as we move forward. First and foremost, the Ten Commandments aren't built on the commandments themselves. God doesn't start with the commandments. He actually starts with a relationship. What God says to them is, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of, the, out of, the land of slavery. Um, I, you, are, you are no longer slaves and so forth. So what he's doing is he's kind of taking them back and he's saying, I have a relationship with you. The type of relationship that I have with you is the one 
that has saved you and made sure that you are no longer slaves. He is the God who sent the plagues that caused Pharaoh to want to let his people go. He is the God who parts the Red Sea. He was the God who, before all of that, spoke to Moses on this mountain and told Moses to go and work on the people's behalf um, as God called him to do so. And he is the God who is going to continue to walk with them as they try to obey God and follow God here. And so God, though, he begins with this commandment really simply here, though, because what he's trying to get them to see and to remember is that's, that's basically kind of the statement that God is reminding them of is you were in Egypt, you were slaves, all of these bad things were happening to you, and I have delivered you from them. Therefore, right, you now belong to me. Which is really the second thing that I want you to see here, is that God claims to be their God. He says, I am your God. I'm the Lord, your God here. And so he's, he's saying here, I am yours, and you are mine. Since they had been slaves in Egypt, yes, they were kind of seen as outcasts, as the Israelites, and so forth. But they, in many ways, they were still Egyptians. They took on a lot of the customs and culture, uh, cultural um, uh, nuances of being in Egypt and being slaves and so forth. In fact, they would have been very familiar with the Egyptian gods, and they would have even mixed some of the worship of the Egyptian gods with Yahweh, which is here considered the true one God and the God here, God is doing here is he's saying that that is not you anymore. And I, I believe part of the journey, by the way, that they're taking, if you wonder why the Egyptians are kind of on this journey, and it takes them years, right? They're wandering 40 years in the wilderness, and then they get to this, this mountain here, like, or, 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 and you kind of wonder, like, what is going on here? Well, here's, here's what I really believe going, is, is going on in a big way, and some of you have heard me say this is God delivers them from Egypt, and he gets them out of Egypt, and he saves them. From, they, they are still used to be, being and acting like Egyptians. And so then God is going to give them the Ten Commandments, and he's going to say, hey, by the way, like none of those other gods exist. They're not real. But he gives them the Ten Commandments to say, you have to change. Right? You can no longer be who you were. Right? And that's a really good thing, because they were slaves. But he's saying, you're actually going to change to the way you do life together. Who you worship, relationship with me just won't work, is what he's saying here. And so what he's doing is he's bringing them together with him, and he's saying, I want to give you a completely new way of life. I'm going to give you a completely new identity. And that is one of the first things I think all of us need to recognize, too, when we get married. So if you're taking notes, here it is, right? Is marriage is built on the same principle. It's built on recognizing that this new relationship, when you get married, actually gives you a new identity. Like everything is, <laughs> pretty much everything, right? <laughs> a lot of things, right, if you know you've been married, is going to have to change. You can't expect to be the same person you were before you got married. You're going to have to change your customs. You're going to have to change the way you behave. You're going to have to take on a new identity. Now, this is painful for some, but it's, it's needed. It really is. You know, you, you think about how even the Bible starts out with marriage. In Genesis 2, let's take a look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so what God says here is that the two are going to become one flesh. So if Nick and Jane get married, Nick and Jane become Nick and Jane, Jane and Nick. 
husband and wife. They belong to one another. The two are becoming one. And you all know, right? You've seen it or you've experienced it. Sometimes when you're just married, you really struggle uh, because two people are becoming one. You can't just go do what you want to do, when you want to do it, and how you want to do it. You have this works. Your spouse is no longer your fiance, right? They've changed. They're more important than even being your fiance. Your spouse now becomes more important than your parents. Some people really struggle, right, to put their spouse before their parents. Your spouse now becomes more important than your friends. All of those relationships and all of those dynamics change because that person actually becomes part of you. And so you have to put that person before anybody else. And so when, right, when you become married, you are becoming somebody else. And this is what God is telling the people at the mountain here. If you're going to marry me, if you're going to enter into this covenant, you are going to become someone else. You're not going to have any other gods. You're not going to worship anybody else. You're not going to put anybody else in front of me. Why? Because you're mine. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the implications of being one, right? The implications of this new identity of being one with God and giving your life to God and following the Lord and having everything changed. The obvious one when it comes to marriage is this. There are these things probably, right? You have a united partner. You have a support system that should be built in to your life. You have a helper. You have a guide. You have a lover. You have a a friend and much more. It's all right there. Uh, But there's more than this. If you look at our time on, it's Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said here, and this is while God is, he's creating Eve. He says this. He says, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, you see that God is making a helper for Adam, and he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he's, 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 he wants to make somebody specifically for Adam, and he says she's going to be a helper. And we're not going to dig into the idea of what the helper is here, but we're going to look at the word fit this morning. Things uh, The ESV translates it fit. Um, other translations will translate this word that I'm about to give you here in a second, suitable. And so a helper suitable for Adam or maybe a a helper right for and some other uh, uh, translations. Um, The actual actual word in the Hebrew is neged. And so what we see here is that Eve is neged for Adam. It's a pastor joke. Um, Some of you got it. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Um, But here's what's going on. Here's what is going on. Right? What we're told as Eve is neged in front of Adam is what it actually, like if you were to translate this, right, literally here, and the translators has changed it a little bit in the English, but I think maybe they should change it back because this is a lot of different implications on a, whole di- on a bunch of different uh, areas, including sexual ethics. But what we are being taught here is that Eve is literally like opposite of. She's in front of. She's directly facing Adam. So what God has done is he has created Eve to be directly opposite of Adam and be a directly opposite helper. And so if all goes well in their marriage, right, what Adam will see or what will happen as they kind of go throughout their life and they they walk together, they will see each other 
all the time. And what they will see in front of each other all the time. But what, what will happen here is that Eve will actually reflect Adam back to him. And Adam will reflect Eve back to her. And so when Adam looks at Eve, what he's going to be seeing is kind of a reflection of himself in a way. Right? So here's, here's why this is kind of crazy. Adam, when he's looking at Eve, what he is doing here as they are one is he is seeing a reflection of himself. And so his character is actually uh, uh, through looking at Eve. And so Adam, let me give you an example of this. So Adam is only kind or is only a kind person if he is kind to Eve. Adam is only, right, if you even want to use these words, Adam is only a good person if he is good to Eve. Eve is actually a reflection of who he really is at his core. I titled this message, The Uncomfortable Truth About Marriage. And this is why, is that your spouse is your mirror. If you think about it this way, I need some help here. Ryan, come up here, man. Come on, Ryan. I need to hold this mirror. My wife's back with the kids, or I could have had her do it. But So, your wife is your mirror, right? So, if you're looking into the mirror, what do you see back? Yourself. A little bit here, because here's something that is important for us as we think about this. this and, I, and I believe this 100%, is that you are not married to who you're married to by accident. God has, God has put that person in your life for a reason. And that person, by the way, that person, by the way, isn't there. He's, he's she or he is not there to primarily make you happy. Right? That's, the Bible actually never really says that. They're to make you godly. And here's something I know. If you become godly, you'll become more happy. All right? But if you mix those, sorts of, those two things up, you're going to really struggle. So your wife is your mirror here, and you're looking in your mirror. Okay, there you go. All right. So you're looking in your mirror, and you're looking at yourself, and you're hoping, right? You're, you're hoping it's going to reflect a good image back to you. But that's not always the case, is it? Right? It's, it's not. It, like, it's not good. And, and that's, the, that's the troubling part about a mirror, is that the mirror tells you the truth, doesn't it? Right? You can't look at a mirror and lie to yourself. Right? If my neck beard is coming in, like, I'm going to see it in the mirror. I, I, like, when I look in the mirror, I know that I've lost hair. It's, it's brutally honest is what a, a, a mirror is. And so it's, it's troubling is what it is. Now, the problem is is something, this is not a problem, but this is something that we all do. When we look at a mirror and we see problems, what, what do we typically do? Like, if we see something that needs to change, what do we do? We change. Like, we look in the mirror, we're like, oh, that needs to, we, I need to change, so I change. Now, when you look at your spouse in this way, what do you typically do? You tell them to change, don't you? Yeah, right? When's the last time you've told a mirror to change? You, you don't tell a mirror to change. You change. Like, nobody's ever tried to change the mirror. I mean, you might. You might get one of the fog. You can spray, like, fogger on there. Right? You, you might do that, but you're, you're, not going to do, you're not going to do that. Ryan, thank you. All right. 
Great marriages, they're, they're not built. I, I promise you they'll never be built on you trying to get your spouse to change. Right? They'll never be built on you trying to change the other person. Right? God, had their, they have their own struggles. We all do. But to become more loving, right? to be more kind, and to be more selfless. I, I remember having a conversation with an older man, gentleman, with a number of people. And he was telling us about the struggles that he was having his, his wife was having some, some uh, mental difficulties, and he was saying that she was knocking on everybody's door in their neighborhood and telling them Jesus was coming back, and not in a, like, a, like a good way, right? Like in a way, like he's coming now. Uh, she had threatened to harm him, even. And just a number of other things were going on, and, and somebody asked him. They said, well, have you, have you ever thought of leaving her? And... He said, no, I couldn't ever do that. And the person asked them, well, why not? And he, he said something I'll, I'll never forget. And he said, well, she's sick, right? And you don't leave sick people. You remain to help that this stood out to me, and I'll, I'll never forget it, is that as a young man 30 years prior to this, he left his wife and four kids and moved four hours away for reasons much less than that. You know, this same man. And yet, as an old man, after getting married again, he looked in his own heart and he said, you know what? If I leave her as a young man, he looked in the mirror and he broke it and walked away. As an old man, he said, what can I do to be a good husband? And I'm not advocating. I need to make this clear, right? Just so if you are a young lady and you're in a relationship where your health is threatened, right? I don't encourage you to stay, but to get, I think, new. That the right way to look, right, at our lives and at our marriages one of the most important questions to ask yourself here, I put it in your notes, is this. It's on the screen here. What if the thing that bothers me the most about my spouse is the very thing that God is trying to draw my attention to in my own life? What if everything that bothers me about my spouse actually stems from a flaw that I have in my own heart? Uh, two stories here to illustrate this. To Financial Peace University, and they came back and they decided to kind of changed a few things in the way that they were going to do finances. And um, so they started their, you know, 10% in savings they're going to give. They're going to start giving too. And, and they feel like they're on track to, to, get their, to get their life in order here. And they begin doing this. And they also have kind of their own miscellaneous uh, spending areas that they have. And so Bill is watching Susan. And Susan is using her money to go to Starbucks and buy clothes and then he comes home and he's wondering, well, why are you buying clothes and buying and going out and getting Starbucks and doing all of that? And he starts to begin to think to himself, man, like she brought $10,000 of credit card debt into this marriage and she's never going to change. She's just being frivolous. Like she, she just doesn't get it. We, we are trying to get out of debt. We're trying to get this done. And she continues to just spend on senseless stuff. Now, right, what should... They decided that together. Right? Maybe he has a control issue. 
Maybe it's not her. Or what about Kim and Jake? Kim comes home and she complains all the time. She is upset at somebody almost constantly. She comes home from work and she's talking about her coworkers. She's talking about how she doesn't like them, how they're always, you know, stabbing her behind her back or, you know, so-and-so is doing whatever and she believed that she was treated in a particular way. Her, she doesn't like her children's teachers. There's always, they're always, something is always their fault. And then her husband, Jake, he, he, uh, uh, he gets criticized often as well. And sometimes these criticisms even make it to Facebook and he can hear her occasionally talking to her friends on the phone about them. And yet they begin to become fairly sad, dissatisfied with the marriage, especially her because she said, uh, emotionally. He has began to hold back what he says to her, and it begins to kill his mar- her marriage, and she eventually files for divorce. Right. Now, what could have Kim had done? Right. If Jake is her mirror, what could she have done? Well, rather than blaming her mirror, right, she could have looked inward. Perhaps Jake was afraid to share with Kim because he was afraid that Kim was going to air out all of his dirty laundry and everybody else's. Maybe she could have helped temper, he could have helped temper some of her unhealthy emotions. At the very least, they could have gotten into counseling so that they could have worked out their struggles. Now, I want to end just making sure that we see how all of this connects with the Ten Commandments and seeing our spouses, our mirror, how it connects with the Ten Commandments. Because the only way here that the Bible actually teaches us that we follow the Ten Commandments, the type of person who doesn't follow them. Right? We are the type of people who would break them. We are the type of people who are imperfect in marriage, that we struggle in our relationships with God and with other people. In fact, in Romans 3.20, we're told even this about the Ten Commandments or about the law itself and the covenant that God has given us. For no one can be made right in God's eyes by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So God gives us these Ten Commandments to ultimately show us, keep the holy standard that God has given to us. And he gives them to us so that we can see our need for Jesus and that we are not righteous on our own. And yet Jesus died to make sure that we would know that he loves us and that we can be justified in Christ, that our hearts can be changed if we believe that God sent a Savior to die on our behalf to do what we couldn't do, which is actually to follow the Ten Commandments, to be the type of person that God has created us to be at the Ten Commandments. And when we sin against our spouse and everybody else on the face of the planet all the time, most importantly, God, what we do is we become humbler. And as you become humbler, your heart begins to change and you become more like the Lord. Eventually, if you humble yourself to the point that you receive Christ as Savior, what happens is you begin to come, become the type of person who would then keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, when you receive Christ as Savior, what God is doing is he is then giving you a new identity. Right? Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You are a new person. And when this new person, you as a new person, believes that Jesus Christ has changed your life and your heart, then you will become the type of person who looks like Christ. 
if you believe Christ is at work in your life and if you allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life. This is the new covenant that Christ has died for you and that he has entered into your life and he is changing you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Looking in a mirror and we are looking at the cross and we are saying, yes, right? We are sinful. We are sinful. I have some things in my life that need to change. But when we look at the cross of Christ, we also see that we have a savior and we see that we are deeply loved and now we have the power to change. And spouses, if you are in a healthy marriage, when you look at your spouse, you will see that happening. You will see yourself in your spouse and you will see. And if your spouse, too, is a believer, and we want this, we want this for everyone and we realize it's not there for everyone. But if your spouse is, too, a believer, here's the beautiful thing about Christian marriage. Is that your spouse will look at you as you see yourself in your spouse. You will also see your spouse who is looking back at you and saying, yes, I love you in spite of your sin. And they will remain there, and you will remain there with them, and you will seek to change yourself for them because you love them. What I just want you to see here is that Christ is our mirror as we come to him in our new identity, and we are completely completely loved in him, although we still see our imperfections in him. And we are the type to be the type of spouse that reflects Christ to our spouse. We are to love our spouse even when they see their sinfulness in us, and we are to love them into change. And we, you as an individual, right, the person that Christ would have you to be as you are in relationship with them. Your spouse is there, put there by God, so that you would be the type of person that God would have you to be in Christ. That's the foundation for everything else we're about to talk about as we move forward over the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you and we pray about marriage, that our spouse is our mirror. But that's not where we begin. We begin by believing, Father, that you have called us to the one whom we've said I do too. I pray, Father, that as we look at our spouse, we see somebody whom we have been called to love, whom we have been called to cherish, but more than that, whom you have called us to be with. I pray, Father, that we do, you do allow them, and we allow them, to change us into the type of person that you would have that are unkind to our spouses, when we are impatient, when we are unloving, I pray, Father, that you give us a special kind of love for the ones who are in front of us, the ones that you have given us, and the ones that we are called to have and to hold and to cherish. I pray, Father, that each person here, if they've been united with Christ, they will know how much that you love them and how you do not give up on them how you are there for them, even when they fail, when they mess up. That you are there for them and want them to turn to you even when when we intentionally sin. I ask, Father, as we get ready to come to communion, we are reminded at this time that we we are united with you. Father, I pray that we're reminded that it's the time where we do search our own hearts, 
as we look at you, as we remember that you shed your blood on the cross for us. And during that time, we should be reminded of our sin and our brokenness and how your body was broken for ours. But we should also be reminded that that blood was the new covenant, this covenant of our Savior. And so let us come to a Savior, let us come to a table where we, we are asked to search our hearts, and yet your love gives us the power to change to become more like you. And we pray that that carries it over and into our marriage. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.